Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I want to do a series of related topics called uh, Thinking Person's Guide. I'm going to start with a Thinking Person's Guide to Capitalism. And uh, this uh, this sort of was brought about in my thinking because I, so many times I read things, and particularly if it's any sort of moderately popular press or the newspapers or here on the radio, um, where you have quote-unquote debates about um, concepts or ideas, and almost invariably, what I find is that they're meaningless. It's not that the two people, you know, don't have points or whatever, but what they're debating is meaningless. And then in this case, I want to explore capitalism, because you'll hear people talking about pro-capitalism, anti-capitalism, yeah, but they don't have any sort of operable definition of capitalism. And when people debate, they tend not to share a definition. So what they're talking about is completely unclear. What do they mean by capitalism? <clears throat> Why do they think it's good or bad? You know, what are the foundations of the reasoning of this? And, and as I was thinking about this, so like, it made me just realize that so many of the more popular, broadly broadcast available writings and, and such uh, media is, is simply, it's not, again, wrong. It's simply meaningless because there's no clear grounds on which people are debating. Um, and so, you know, it, it's just hard to make heads or tails of it. It's like, what, what are they talking about when they use a word like, for instance, capitalism. Um, and so I thought it would be a good place to start because this is when you hear a lot about, you know, socialism, capitalism, this, that. Um, and so it's it's pretty straightforward. I mean, of course, huge subject, but um, there's a few core elements to capitalism and the idea of capitalism, the social institution of capitalism. Um, and, you know, and that if you can keep those straight, then you'll have a pretty good idea of, of what's going on. And then you can, you know, judge the merits of various approaches and arguments uh, appropriately. Um, and I, I guess generally broadly agreed. I mean, it's a complex subject full of debate and whatnot, but I think it's pretty straightforward. One is you have um, private uh, property and really the private control of the means of production. This is sort of the, uh, one of your classic definitions. What it means is people own things that lets them make things. They own things that allow them to participate in the economy. Um, so that's pretty straightforward. It's not that confusing. And we'll look at some examples of, of how all this works. Uh, the second element is, <clears throat> is that you have to be able to sell your labor as well. So people, um, you, you know, if you're a slave, you can't participate. This is how you distinguish all kinds of ancient societies. They didn't have this aspect. So you might be in a, a relationship of, of if you're a peasant where you can't leave the land and, you know, your labor is owned. So you basically don't own yourself, right? So the opportunity to participate in the economy with your labor, um, freely, by the way, freely, not imposed, uh, is another aspect that's necessary. Um, and then a third traditional element that people talk about that helps clarify things is that the um, distributions of goods are controlled by the market. So this is important because uh, generally speaking, um, it, historically, this was almost never the case, right? But if if the free market, quote unquote, free market, you know, we'll talk about that, uh, it is determines like you know who gets to gets a house. How do we get uh, oil? Where does you know if salt? If people need food? If people want corn? Right? How is this distributed? Is it distributed by the government? Is it distributed by local elites? Um, is it a communal decision? Um, if those decisions about the distribution of most goods and all this is confusing and mixed is made by not by the markets, a freeish market, then 
Pierre not in a capitalist system. Um, there's other elements you could talk about, cash, investments, all this. But generally, those are the three big ones, that you have private ownership of the primary means of production. You have uh, individuals who can participate in the economy freely, which they generally translate as selling your – you have the opportunity to sell your labor. Um, and that the distribution of goods is controlled by free markets, which is basically means that the people who own the – the production are and are able to you know decide how the goods move around. It's not controlled by the governments or by uh, communal elements or by uh, regional elites. And so, for, to to think about this historically, um, if you look at something like ancient Rome, now ancient Rome had a, had a massive economy, was absolutely not capitalist economy, and and you had all kinds of barriers to this. For instance, uh, Rome itself, the capital, famously had to import. I mean, this huge network of of shipping and boats and uh, ports and you know everything to try and get enough food into Rome to feed the Roman population. So, you know, in the ancient world, it was just ridiculously large. Some estimates say maybe as high as two million, but let's just be you know conservative and say a million people. Well, you don't have refrigeration. Uh, you don't have that, you know, so, you know, you, you have to have this continuous flow of food into Rome every day, because if that flow is interrupted for a couple of days, oh, you know, you're not doing your job as, as a Roman elite. So like the distribution of most of the primary goods, water, food, uh, these sorts of things were not controlled at all in any way by the quote-unquote markets, they were a function of the government, necessary function of government. The government was heavily invested in controlling the price of bread and grain and making sure that arrived in a timely fashion so that people wouldn't get upset. I mean, it's the famous bread and circuses. I mean, they when they said bread and circuses, they really meant bread because, I mean, they meant the circuses too, but you know, there were several, many periods of unrest in Rome were caused by uh, dramatic increases in the bright price of food or the shortages. By the way, this is standard all the way up to the French Revolution. I mean, this is one of the key causes of the French Revolution was a spike in the cost of the basic foodstuffs for most of the population. So government throughout history have had such a huge investment in trying to make sure the populations that counted, right? So you counted if you were a Roman citizen inside Rome, um, you know, was fed or had water or all these basic ideas. And so they were not controlled by the markets. The governments did not allow the markets to do that because they were too too important to the structure and sustainability of the government. Also, virtually no one had the opportunity to, quote unquote, sell their labor, right? They weren't free participants in that way. Probably, I mean, you know, estimates vary again, you know, somewhere 40, 50, 60% of the population is just slaves. Um, so they don't get to play. And then you have all kinds of indentured servants. And then you have, uh, you know, women, of course, they can't, you know, participate. So, you know, so by the, you know, you've narrowed it down to your population. And then there was a whole, you know, social strictures that resisted the kinds of things that could be traded, how you could participate in trade, who was allowed to sell things, what were they allowed cost controls, you know, just, they went on, on, and on. And so you can have a vast empire that has, you know, millions of citizens um, with, with huge, you know, capacity to wage war and build monuments and do all this and have very little of what we would recognize as capitalism. It doesn't mean there weren't traders who were doing a little business. They were, but it was, you know, important, but not central to what was the big Roman imperial project. And so 
uh, all those elements are round, but they don't, they're, they're not large enough to become sort of centrally uh, capitalistic, if you will. And, and who knows where the cutoff is, right? Because all, all economies are mixed, which we'll talk about when we reach our economy. Another one you can look at is like, you know, you go later, like feudal age or um, earlier, you know, so many aspects of, if you look at like, um, I'm reading a big book on the Reformation. And one of the things that's clear is uh, prior to the Reformation, the Catholic Church controlled so many elements of the economy uh, that they were, and they weren't functioning as, uh, they were, they were not a capitalist, right? They were focused on a religious end, um, and trying to manifest the power of the church and serve the people and do whatever it was they were on about doing, but they had huge control over land. Um, they had uh, massive, uh, taxing power. They could stop people from purchasing all kinds of goods, notably lit printed material, and so they, they pretty much jammed up any sense of, of free market, free distribution of goods. And, not, and, and plus, the, you know, there were so many other checks and balances. There were still vestiges of feudal system where many of the peasants had no rights um, and certainly couldn't participate freely. Um, the you know, local elites controlled and restricted distribution of all kinds of goods. So the market was not allowed to rule there. You, you know, so it just goes on and on. And so the source of that, the notion that we have that, wow, if you don't have capitalism, you don't have anything, um, is sort of wrongish. You know, you can, you can do these things without capitalism. Um, but slowly and surely, um, in various ways, capitalism has risen to the fore, this notion that it is more productive and more viable and it's the best possible way, it's the best economy that you can have. Okay, great. Um, it has demonstrated a couple of things, by the way. Uh, and if you want to then start thinking about it uh, in the modern sense, as you go, okay, <clears throat> one of the things that's been demonstrated, I think pretty conclusively, is that if you want huge production and productivity, um, it seems like particularly small-scale private landowning is really, really productive. And so when you look at like the communist revolution in, in Russia or in China, both of them went after their sort of small scale agricultural producers, the kulaks, um, as they were called in Russia um, during the, the, the communist revolution. And in China, it was during the Great Leap Forward where they tried to collectivize the farms. In both cases, what you got <clears throat> was famine. And you got famine because of the structure of production um, was based uh, to a limited degree on, you know, you produce food, you sell it into the market. Well, the government didn't want to buy the food. Um, they wanted to change the way the economy ran. And this disrupted the existing sort of social system. And, and so it was, you know, basically it was a violent overthrow of the existing productive process, which wildly destroyed. It was just like production destruction. Um, because of the, you know, it was just the inefficiencies and, you know, everything, blah, blah, blah. As you, as you walk through there, I mean, basically had to kill the farmers to take their land and then try to put it into workable units, and that didn't tend to go very well. And so it just, you know, really had this uh, effect of repressing demand. Um, and it, it turns out that a scale, you know, sufficiently large but not incredibly large farm like we have today, which is sort of a problem in another direction, um, is, is, is hugely productive of agricultural goods and food. And since feeding your people is always one of your core missions, um, you know, that seems to work at a certain scale. Um, and so, you know, when you ponder this, these are the sorts of historical examples I think are, are good to reflect upon. Now, 
what happens, I think, when people start talking about this is, is you decide what part you don't like and what part you do like, and you take that part and say that's the whole of it or, or not. But, so let's just start with a simple one. Um, owning to the meaning of, of production <clears throat> and you know selling your labor and free market distribution. So if you own a small restaurant, if you own a small restaurant right now, sorry about that. <clears throat> Hopefully good times will return. But so you own a small restaurant, <clears throat> you are owning the means of production, right? Now, what's interesting is tend to, traditionally people who want to criticize capitalism don't tend to point their fingers at like small local shopkeepers. They want to say, oh, it's multinational corporations or whatever, but that's, we'll, we'll get there. But just if we keep this in mind at the local small level, because I think it's much easier to hold in our, in our thoughts, you go, okay, now this person wants to make a profit. So that's great. Um, and they want to make a profit by running a business that they're interested in and they like. And, and, you know, and there's nothing, there's, there's no like huge ethical problem here. They have employees, assuming they don't, you know, horribly mistreat them, you know, that's fine. And then the, you know, people work for them and, and they, you know, maybe get tips and they sell. And, and that simple seeming system is really a way to think about this. Where do they buy their supplies? They have a couple of suppliers they can buy from. They can get stuff from local farmers. They can go to, you know, Cisco, one of the big distributors, another big distributor. They can, you know, produce some of their own food. You know, they have a network of market forces that allow them to get the means of production. In this case, the raw ingredients of food and kitchen utensils. They're allowed to own a business. Maybe they even own the building the business is in. Um, so then they own, they're owning their means of productions and they sell stuff for a profit and they employ people who are selling the labor in there. No problem, right? We, we get this. Um, now where this, so this doesn't seem to be controversial, but what I think when people want to attack, um, uh, capitalism, what, what they miss is like, okay, <clears throat> if you remove the capacity of individuals to own restaurants and shops and stuff, you end up with what has historically existed in many instances, by the way, which is like communal production of food, communal kitchens, uh, government-controlled uh, food delivery systems. Um, and the history of this is not really reassuring, right? Certainly not in, the, in, in any sense of, of gourmet, uh, because, you know, that the, if you have a government-controlled or communally-controlled uh, system of food distribution, the goal is to, you know, achieve whatever the communal goal is. So if you're in a monastery, the church is going to feed you, but because they, let's say, your monastic order views food as, a, uh, as an indulgence, that is going to lead you to sin, then they're just going to give you whatever gruel you can you can survive on, and that's because they have a different goal, right? And so with a, when, when someone has a restaurant, their goal is to make some money, so they want to produce food that meets a certain market demand and makes their customers sufficiently happy to, you know, give the money, and then they make their profit, and here we go. So it's a, so a totally different way of looking at the, how the food is distributed. And that, um, it, you know, simple, but again, the history is pretty clear that if, if you don't have private production and distribution of things like restaurants, the quality and certainly the variety of the food tends to just plummet. And this happens sometimes in emergencies, for instance, or wartime where, we, you know, for necessity because there's only a limited amount and we have to all cut back and sort of we go on rations and all that may be necessary at times, but 
people, if given a choice, tend to prefer not to do that. Um, so on one hand, if you keep that in mind, is that people go, okay, well, okay, so uh, well, all these people are attacking capitalism, they're going to try to destroy local businesses, blah, blah. And they go, okay, no, the other side is to say, oh, well, this big, you know, evil corporate um, entities, right, international finance capital, as it were. So if you look there, um, the problem is, and the criticism is that um, corporations, for instance, um, are legally, if you're traded on the stock market, you're legally obligated to try to maximize profit, not just make a profit, but actually get a maximum return on every dollar invested. This is what you as a stock holding company, as a stock uh, selling company, this is what you have to do. It's right there in your charter. If you're a CEO, that's your legal obligation because you're not trying to rob the shareholders. You're trying to maximize their value. And since they, in theory, quote unquote, own the company, um, that's their, that's what the, the legal obligation is. We'll give you some money, but you're going to do your best to give us as much money back as possible. Um, you know, clearly the problem here is couldn't be any more obvious is that this is since this is basically a sociopath, right? So if your only goal in life is to maximize return, you have no other ethics or values, you are, uh, amoral, right? You're just, you're just sort of a sociopath. And so this is why it's easy to throw rocks at corporations because the structure itself suggests very strongly that they have no ethics or values. They have one maximized return on investment. And it's uh, so again, on the other side, it's very easy to attack that. But when you look at a local shop, you can look at a local store owner and say, look, if you're in a community and you have a, have a, have a restaurant, you have all kinds of other, you're not just trying to make a profit. Um, you're, you're, you can't just just maximize. You have to do make all kinds of other decisions. You know, people know you. Um, you have employees. Often, maybe you have relations with them over time. You know, you're in a dynamic environment. You have to figure out who your clients are. Right? <clears throat> people might, might donate to the local baseball team. You know, all these other forces are at play that keep you grounded in the community, and you're making decisions that may probably aren't strictly maximizing profit. You may be saying, look, I want to make incredible, exquisite meals, so I'm going to use the best uh, ingredients I can get that are expensive, even though I could probably make more money if I used lesser goods. Most of my customers probably wouldn't notice, right? But you say, you know, I'm dedicated to an ethos of, ethos of food, or I'm only going to use organically grown, locally produced, because that's, you know, part of my ethics as a, as a person. And so, that doesn't preclude you from having the private ownership of the means of production. But it is different from um, the kinds of forces that work when you're in like a transnational financial system who in theory and function this never works, but in theory have only one single goal and that is to maximize uh, shareholder return. So uh, it's important to note that within the capitalist system, you have everything from local shopkeepers to you know, these international financial institutions. And when somebody says, oh, capitalism, and then they say, you know, the president of Exxon is a jackass, or, you know, the, this corporation did awful things in Africa, therefore capitalism is bad. Yeah, you know, that's, <laughs> you know, that's sort of like, okay, that's part of a system that has that as a component. But does that mean you're opposed to the place that you just went to get lunch, that you've been going to get lunch for 20 years and that you know the people and you've grown up with the kids? Probably not. Um, conversely, 
Uh, when people say, no, capitalism is the greatest thing ever, they tend to avoid looking at some of the problems that are generated by sort of having this, um, you know, some of the evils that the other people will point out. And so, again, uh, you know, trying to figure out what is actually going on, it takes a little more subtle contemplation of this. Now, some of the real problems with capitalism um, that are just obvious, and this is, you know, well-researched, it's not revolutionary, but if goods cannot be distributed in a meaningful way by the markets, your system breaks down. So those goods and services which don't distribute well by market forces don't work in a capitalist system. It's one of those, it's one of those problems. It's sort of obvious, right? Look, it's a good system for goods that are and services that work when you distribute them by, you know, the profit mode and private ownership of production, et cetera, et cetera. But when those modes, if it doesn't work that way, ugh. And so this is why basically they're only mixed economies. There are no pure capitalist economies. They're only mixed economies because it turns out the classic examples, of course, healthcare. Um, how much can a doctor charge you if you're having a heart attack? Answer, probably as much as they want, right? If in a, in a theoretically free market, you're going to die if I don't give you my services. So my services are tremendously valuable to you. Um, so you give me, I want all of your money. This is clearly not a functional system. Um, and so most countries, the United States is a quasi-exception, have socialized medicine because there's no meaningfully good way with a market economy to distribute health care. At least no one's figured it out yet. Maybe, maybe somebody will in the future, but so far no one has worked this out. And be, because basically it's a losing proposition. Either you deny care to almost everybody, which really damages your society, um, because it's just far, far, far too expensive. Or you have to come up with some system of distributing the costs, i.e. large-scale insurance companies, uh, subsidized hospitals, uh, subsidized doctor education, subsidized nurse education, caps on salaries, you know, the, the entire crazy convoluted systems of, of, of that every system, basically every country in the world has come up with. Uh, to try and figure out how to do this. And there isn't one solution, by the way. There's, you know, however, how many countries are there in the world? Pretty much there's that many different approaches to this. Um, but they all are trying to address the same problem. If you want to distribute um, sandwiches again, this turns out to be not that hard. Some people like sandwiches. They'll pay a little more for quality sandwiches. The meat, the goods are readily available. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's not that hard. I mean, there are famines and you have war disrupts things, but basically on a normal day-to-day -day system, we can get sandwiches out to the people who want them. Healthcare, God, Jesus, just what a mess. I mean, it's a real big problem. Um, because how do you place value on this? How do you price these things? How do you make them make sense? Tremendously difficult. Um, another cl classic example, of course, is education. Um, everybody knows education is good for a culture, for a society, for an economy. Um, it's not clear what the best way to fund it. Again, how many countries are there in the world? There's more or less that many different ways of coming up to fund it, but n almost none or none that I can think of are purely just private, right? The private education system, it turns out that it just doesn't work that well. 
Um, and, and you can go through this and over and over again. Um, uh, electricity. Many of our basic services, like generating electricity and delivering it to people, are either private or, I mean, are either public or semi-public um, because, it, the, you know, if you have 18 different electrical companies trying to compete to deliver electricity to everybody, this just turns out to be horribly inefficient. And how do you make laws for everybody being able to sp spread wires everywhere and who can put what power on what wire? And again, basically governments decided, right, we're just not going to do all that. We're going to come up with a quasi-socialist, which is to say government-monitored uh, or government-controlled systems for the distribution of some primary goods. Not all of them, but of some of them. And so any real economy in the world in which we actually live as some sort of fantastical economy that people imagine um, is an incredibly elaborate, confusing, complex mix of free markets, government-controlled markets, regulation of markets, free labor, impediments to labor. You know, the list goes on and on. It's this incredible mix. For instance, one of the things everybody points out, not everybody, but people who ponder on these subjects is if you're going to have a free labor market, which is in theory part of capitalism, um, you shouldn't be able to have immigration curbs, right? Because what that does is interfere with the free movement of labor, and therefore it creates a disruption in your market system, right? So one of the main primary resources for productivity is, of course, labor. And so the market is supposed to freely distribute labor around however it needs to be, and the market forces are supposed to take care of that. And everywhere in the world, governments say, uh, no, <laughs> no, no, no. We're not going to allow the unlimited free movement of labor because it's just too disruptive. Now, that may be a fair argument, but it's certainly anti-capitalist, right? Capitalism, in theory, again, in practice, because it never happens. But in theory, it's supposed to be totally in favor of the unlimited movement of free labor to wherever there is demand from wherever there isn't demand. <clears throat> when governments intervene, which they all do, to stop that, well, then that interferes with the free capital market. Similar case, this is if you look at um, the women participating in the labor force, one of the big impediments to uh, both economic expansion and the free participation of labor into the economy was the restrictions, which are still in place in much of the world, that, that kept women from participating equally in the labor force. And so... You know, if you, hey, if you're a citizen and you're supposed to be able, if you're in a capitalist system, here you go, knock yourself out. You're supposed to be able to participate. For most of human history, almost no women were allowed to participate in a direct way. Laws, social mores, all these things kept them from actually participating. And so this was a huge impediment to the, the functioning, quote unquote, of a free capitalist market. Um, and so it's odd sometimes when I see, you know, sort of quote, unquote, pro-capitalist conservative thinkers who have this sort of, you know, women need to think about not participating in the economy and, you know, they have these other roles. And it's like, well, that's, you know, really is just simple anti-capitalism. I mean, it might be right. They can be, hey, maybe that's a good moral stance. I, mean, I wouldn't agree with it, but maybe it is. You can make that argument. But it's certainly not a capitalist argument, right? If you're pro-capitalism in theory, you're pro-everybody participates in the market. Um Another problems that you'll run into in this complexity is things like regulation. It turns out that if you let people do anything they want in a free market, they do horrible, horrible, vastly just life-killing things. Unfortunately, there's a certain percentage of humanity that is just happy to kill people and make them suffer if that will allow them to make a profit. Fortunately, it's not a huge percentage, 
that would be really problematic, but there's always some people. Um, and so you have to have regulation. And so people always say, oh, regulation is the government interfering with the free function of the markets. And the answer is yes, that is what it's doing. And it's doing that because it, if they don't do that, if there isn't some interference with the quote unquote free operation of the markets, what you get is just, and these are actual real world examples, some of which are, you know, there was a group of doctors in my state, Washington. <clears throat> this is about a decade ago, I think, maybe eight years ago, a decade. Anyway, they got busted because they were manufacturing and selling fake uh, chemotherapy doses. So you're making a fortune because I guess they cost, you know, like, I don't know, if someone crazy, like $1,700 a dose, which is, you know, back to the other problem with medical expenses. But, um, and then they're selling them, but these are fake cancer treatments. So they were like killing people, but they're making a lot of money while doing it. So there is, you know, so it's like in theory, if you just want a free market, great, kill people. You, if, you know, if you can get away with it, if, if people don't find out in time and you make a bunch of money, well, I guess that's the free operation of the markets. Well, the problem is, of course, is that's a terrible system. You know, you have to protect people from being injected with drugs that are fake, if at all possible, you know? And so they were arrested and went to jail, of course. But, you know, if you don't, it turns out that there is enough people in the world who would happily do this, just sell you fake chemotherapy or, you know, child labor laws. You know, should children be working in factories? Worker safety laws. Should you be able to work people to death? Should you be able to put them in environments that are incredibly dangerous? Um, and where you know they're going to be injured. It's not even a question. You just know it's a matter of time. Every three weeks, somebody gets an arm cut off. Well, that's just the price of business, right? So um, the notion that there is this, you know, magical free market that operates and then everybody, it's all lovely and butterflies is just, it's just silly because the, the historical record demonstrates emphatically that without close regulation, that small percentage of people who have apparently no ethics or more, you know, they're sociopaths, um, will, you know, do awful things that cause huge disruption to your society and the quality of life of the citizens of a country. And so there has to be regulation and quote unquote interference in the markets. Um, the question is not that, of course, the question which is more interesting is what is the appropriate interference? What is the best way to regulate? How is, um, what, what is the, you know, the least amount of interference that can generate the most amount of uh, protection for the least amount of economic disruption, right? Those sorts of subtle and complex questions I think are interesting, in fact, endlessly fascinating, I would say. Um, but, the, the, but the people who say, oh, you know, uh, all regulation is evil and, you know, free capitalism, free markets, I mean, it's like, oh, yeah, some regulations are stupid. Absolutely. It's, you know, bureaucracy will come up with stupid regulations. That seems to be one of their core missions. But it doesn't mean all regulations are stupid. It just means some of them are stupid. Um, I, another example on, on this line is the, um, I think it was in Pittsburgh or is it Cleveland? Anyway, one of the, uh, you know, industrial belt countries, the rivers used to periodically catch on fire. Um, because of so much pollution. And so it turns out if you have no regulations against industries polluting your rivers, they will pollute them to the point where they burn, which is just like unimaginable. It's just, I mean, and they say, oh, you know, well, we're good corporate citizens, whatever. No, you polluted a river until it caught fire. That means you don't care at all. It's like you have zero, you care not at all. 
And so those sorts of people need to be, we need to protect ourselves from them, right? They're just another, if, if we have a serial killer, we want them arrested and we want them in jail because we don't want them, you know, murdering people. Similarly, we don't want people poisoning uh, our rivers from industry because it's just like a serial killer um, because they just don't care, right? It's going to kill people, damage health, and the rivers catch fire. Um, so that sort of uh, notion of like completely untrammeled capitalism, of course, is not functional. Conversely, the people on the other side who say, well, let's just get rid of capitalism and then everything will be great. I mean, this is, the, the, again, the history here is pretty damn clear that A, people don't want to give it up. I mean, this is one thing. It's, 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 I, there's no real evidence of a voluntary shift, right? There isn't, right? Is, generally, this has been done with guns, lots of guns and lots of people dying. So that's bad. Um, and two, what's followed has tended to not be that convincing uh, in, in the success storyline. Um, so lots of mixed economies out there in the world and lots of argument and debate and political uh, back and forth about how, what the mix should be between government involvement, private ownership, regulation, investment control, international participation, all this. I mean, that is a big, messy, convoluted, fascinating world that I think is wonderful to explore and ponder about. And, and But I think what happens is when people start talking, oh, pro-capitalism, anti-capitalism, is just, they're just senseless. These are just senseless positions. Um, so people always, the, many of the pro-socialists say, oh, well, look at the, you know, the you know, Nordic countries, right, which do tend to have a, a more strong socialist bent in some ways. Um, you know, they still have lots of private industry. They still have lots of private businesses. They still have large chunks of their economy that are capitalist. And they have lots of socialist elements, right? So this, you know, that that why this why people find this so hard to to figure out. And so the the debate uh, or the the reasonable debate or the interesting debate, the one that actually is addresses how the world functions, is to reflection on you know where do certain systems work? Where do they not work? Where is regulation necessary and helpful and productive? And how is it best to implement it versus where is it unhelpful and unproductive and where does it really create more problems than it solves and how do we best implement this? And so, but those kinds of questions I think are so rarely asked. I mean, it's just crazy how rarely I, I, I hear that outside of, you know, the sort of uh, more uh, narrow academic uh, circles where people are really interested in these kinds of things. But those are the real debates that, that happen that affect people's lives. Um, you know, a couple more examples of this, of where you can see um, this actually in action right now. Uh, so uh, we decided as a country that higher education was a good, in, and, and to an extent uh, that no other country is even close to us. And so I think impressive for the United States, good for us, points to us. Man, we have an incredible collection of some of the best educational institutions in the world. I mean, it's just un unbelievable the density and quality of higher education that our country has. I mean, truly, there's nothing ever been like this in history. It's, it's you know, it's a golden age, as it were. Um, about, ooh, give or take, 30 years ago, how we funded that started to change. 
Um, earlier, it had been funded primarily through state support because we don't know the federal government didn't do too much, did some, but not too much. So these were state colleges, state universities funded their land grant colleges in many, in, in many states, uh, private colleges that had big endowments. These were um, state universities funded primarily through the states and some tuition from the students. <clears throat> As the schools expanded, um, one of the things they did is they transferred more and more of the expense onto the students. So as a ratio of student population and, and per student uh, state um, investment in the universities, this, this did not keep up with the increasing increases in cost. And so there was this gap and financial aid filled this for a while. And then they came up with this great idea of the student loan. Hey, these students are going to eventually graduate and make money, so we'll just loan them money now to get the education so that they can go on in the future and get their, you know, get their reward of a job and they'll pay back and the whole system works and the universities flourish and the students can go to school and everybody is happy. Um, this was not crazy, not a crazy scheme. At some point, it went wrong. <laughs> you know, at some point, this this notion just sort of fell apart. Um, and the investment that the students were freely taking on, um, the, the, the loans that they were taking on and investing in their education, have sort of grown disproportionately. The funding systems have become weird. Uh, the uh, you know, motivations of universities that started to see themselves as, as private companies, essentially. They thought of themselves as private companies because so much of their money is coming from their customers, the students, um, that we've created a big problem, which is this massive, massive uh, student loan debt. And it'll be interesting to see what happens with this. Uh, keep, you know, stay tuned. Things are happening even now, but who knows how, how this will all turn out. Um, but it, this was probably a mistake. Other countries have pursued other paths to this. They've kept it totally public, all the 100% publicly funded. Some schools have had a mix. Other countries have had a mix of some private funding, some public funding, some student funding, right? So you can have private schools that operate as businesses, and they can actually make that function with endowments, right? So, you know, there's been a number of ways of addressing something like a, a valuable good like higher education, uh, the United States came up with this system that worked pretty well for a while and now looks like yeah, it's not working that well. And that's okay, but it's a complex mix. It doesn't mean that everything about higher education is bad. It doesn't mean that any public involvement is bad. It doesn't mean that all schools should become private. It doesn't mean that the private education model is the perfect model because that's the free market model. Um, it just means that you know, these ongoing complexities and, and um, problems are going to be with us and that the dream of, of a solution, which is either a pure capitalist form or a pure eliminate capitalism form, um, just doesn't seem functional, right? And there's no historical evidence of it being functional. And so that's really where I, I would like to end is because the simple idea of capitalism um, is, you know, again, private ownership of the means of production, um, free freeish participation in the means of of, of, of freeish participation in the labor markets, um, and then the market freeish markets distribute goods, give or take, is not at its core like some evil invention as people want to make it out to. But it's also not like the magic fairy dust that solves everything. 
So when you have um, instances of, of, you know, global corporations doing awful things and destroying the environment and spilling oil and exploiting third world labor and, you know, whatever, you go right. So that's a problem. But it doesn't mean capitalism as a whole is the problem. It just means these sort of expressions of the logic of capitalism are the problem. And it also doesn't mean that elimination of capitalism is a universal solution, right? So this is, you know, and that's where I, you know, really in so many of these debates are, are meaningless because they're sort of ahistorical. They don't look at the many experiments that have been run historically or the many versions of what we're talking about are going on in the world right now. Uh, and two, they, they take place without any like firm grounding in an agreed definition of what they're actually debating or arguing about. Um, and if you don't have that, then you're not communicating, you're not really um, arguing. So that is what I'd like to press for in each of these uh, segments that I'll do. I want to start with capitalism. I think I'll do feminism next just because that's another buzzword that's out there that tends to get thrown away around in a meaningless way. Um, but when you think of capitalism, again, just if you can keep those three cores in mind, and you can see on one hand how the logic of that is reasonable when, you know, someone is running uh, a local, you know, restaurant. And you can see how it can go wrong when someone takes that, the, the profit motive or the private ownership motive to its logical extreme, which is sort of this, you know, unethical sociopathic tendency to accumulate wealth with no other consideration at all. Um, and, and both of those operate simultaneously. That's why it's interesting and fascinating and confusing and difficult. Um, and there is no magic, you know, revolution that is going to uh, make all the complexity and difficulty go away. So capitalism, a brief introduction and some things to think about. Thank you.